You're listening to the Politics Theory Other podcast. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is David Waring. We spoke about David's article, The Myth of the Reforming Monarch, Orientalism, Racial Capitalism and UK Support for the Arab Gulf Monarchies. We talked about the nature of Britain's relationship with the Gulf states, why it's a mistake to see Western support for brutal absolutist authority in the region as self-consciously cynical rail politic, and we also talked about the nature of the so-called sports-washing debate and what's missing from mainstream discussion of the purchase of football clubs such as Manchester City, Newcastle United and Paris Saint-Germain by the Gulf states. David Waring is a specialist on UK foreign relations in the Middle East. His monograph, Anglo-Arabia, Why Gulf Wealth Matters to Britain, is the only book-length study of the modern political economy of Britain's ties with the states of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Our conversation was prompted by his recent article, The Myth of the Reforming Monarch, Orientalism, Racial Capitalism and UK Support for the Arab Gulf Monarchies, which appeared in the journal Politics. So we're talking at a moment when there's an unusually large amount of discussion in the British media about the Gulf states, often focusing on workers and women's rights and the oppression of LGBTQI people. But that's to a a very large extent occurring in the sports sections of our national media because of the ownership of football clubs such as Manchester City, Newcastle and Paris Saint-Germain by the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. The latter country was, of course, the venue last year for the rather controversial World Cup. We'll come on to the question of so-called sports washing later on. But first, could you talk a bit about the economic significance of Britain's relationship to the Gulf states, which you detail in your article? where you describe Britain's links with the Gulf Cooperation Council, comprising Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, as Britain's most important set of strategic ties in the global south. Yeah, so Britain comes into that part of the world in the early part of the 1800s. um, And initially, the idea is to create a kind of buffer zone protecting the Indian Empire from Russia and from France. And it starts to cultivate the local rulers who at that time are fairly insignificant in and of themselves. But as the century draws on, we get into the sort of late 19th, early 20th century, it becomes clear that that part of the world has this whole new strategic significance in terms of the of the huge oil reserves that are being discovered in the area. And by the time we get to sort of World War One and just after, it's very clear to British imperialism that this is a key strategic region of the world. It's got a fantastic sort of oil reserves, huge oil reserves, at a time when the industrialised world economy is becoming dependent on oil. And so strategically important because of the oil and the role that plays in industrialised capitalism, but also the wealth generated by the sale of that oil becomes hugely important as well. And British oil firms, French oil firms, American oil firms get interested in you know in, in the business there. But the, the British state, American state, French state are interested in that too. And so a relationship develops whereby these Western oil firms extract the oil, and the oil revenues flow into and flow back into the British financial system, French and American as well. The way the relationship has developed essentially is since since that sort of mid twentieth century period is that gradually the Gulf states have gained incrementally more and more autonomy and independence within that relationship. But the kind of fundamentals of the relationship are 
basically the same, notwithstanding the balance of power has, has, has shifted so that they're no longer client states of the West, client states of Britain, Britain's puppets. But nevertheless, Britain helps to prop them up alongside its Western allies in terms of selling arms to them, in terms of um, being prepared to project its own military power into the region. And Western firms are still in there to a large degree, and Western oil firms. But also, you know, those Gulf petrodollars, as we call them in academia, the wealth generated from the sale of hydrocarbons, continue to flow into the Western financial system. In my book, I explained that this has become particularly important for Britain at a time where, if you think about the process where neoliberalisation occurs in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, like Britain's industrial capacity is kind of allowed to decline in relative terms and Britain's financial industry becomes a greater focus, financial services become a greater focus, you know, gain importance within the sort of the economic mix in Britain. What that does is create a, a, a current account deficit, like a, a deficit in terms of the amount of goods and services being sold by Britain to the rest of the world versus the amount being bought by Britain from the rest of the world. And that puts downward pressure on your currency. How do you square that? How do you ensure that your, your, your current, the value of your currency doesn't start to decline in relative terms as a result of that? Well, the way you do that is by attracting capital inflows from outside, from the rest of the world, and having a financial system like Britain does the leading financial centres in the world, means that it's able to attract those financial inflows and square this deficit on the current account on the balance of payments. Now, one of the big sources, not the only one by any stretch of imagination, not even the majority, but still an important source of capital inflow from abroad is Gulf petrodollars. A huge amount flowing in from the Saudis in particular, from the Emiratis as well, and from Qatar. And that money comes in... Not just because Britain has this financial services industry and they want to put their money into British banks or, or buy equities and British um, sort of London Stock Exchange, but also because there's there's a kind of strategic relationship. Well, the strategic relationship is playing a role in that you know these regimes think well if we continue to put our money into this into this country into this, into this British financial services industry. We continue to make ourselves valuable to the British and the British will continue as a global military power and diplomatic power, continue to support us. And presumably the UK is particularly vulnerable to that tactic because our economy is much less diversified than other major economies. Uh, yeah, 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 that's true. I mean, it's a form of leverage. You know, the, the, the British and the Americans and the French have their leverage over the Gulf regimes in terms of the fact that they're the security guarantors of the Gulf regimes and they're the source of the Gulf regime's coercive power internally and externally, the ultimate source. And at the same time, the Gulf regimes have a degree of leverage over the British, French and the Americans. And, and particularly the British, as you say, because of the lopsidedness of our economy as a result of neoliberalism, they have that kind of leverage whereby You've got a currency, pound sterling, that's vulnerable to, to, to shocks, vulnerable to withdrawal, of, vulnerable to capital flight. There is a sense in which the Gulf states can say, well, you know, don't push us too hard or we'll pull our money. The extent to which that threat is, is credible, given the role that Britain plays in their security and the security of the regimes, is, a, is another matter. But they've at least got that bargaining chip. Is it your sense that Britain's relationship with the GCC states is becoming even more important as the UK experiences this relative economic decline and stagnation. 
And also as the currency potentially becomes more vulnerable, I mean, we've seen those stories in the financial press comparing the pound to a sort of emerging market currency with all the volatility that that implies. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, as I said before, the kind of the balance of power between the British state and the Gulf regimes has been shifting incrementally since the days when these regimes were puppets of the British. And, you know, Brexit has had an impact in terms of Britain's sort of diplomatic status, if you like, internationally. It's also had a big impact economically. Think about the dynamics I mentioned before, the economic dynamics. The damage to British exports as a result of deindustrialisation, you know, you've, you've now got a further damage to British exports as a result of it sort of impeding access to its major export market in Europe, which means there's a greater need for capital inflows to square that problem with the current account. Now, you've also got a further issue with regard to capital inflows coming from the fact that, you know, Brexit has, has downgraded the status of, of Britain as a financial centre because it's no longer a kind of launch pad into Europe for investment capital. And the problems the British economy is having generally as a result of Brexit and much else means that it becomes gradually less and less of a kind of attractive venue for investment as I you know, investment has been made purely on economic terms. Investment has been made purely from this kind of commercial sort of rationale where you're thinking, am I going to get a good rate of return if I invest in the British economy in, in whatever way, I'm, you know, whether it's buying equities or proper foreign direct investment or whatever. So states like the Gulf states, which A, are absolutely swimming in money, but B, have a non-economic reason for investing in Britain, for sending their petrodollars here, i.e. maintaining that strategic relationship which has kept them in power, that becomes even more important. And I think, you know, the British know it and the Gulf states know it as well. There was a huge push right from when Brexit happened. There was a huge push by the Tory government to attract investment from the Gulf states. You know, a really, really concerted effort. And as the Gulf states watch, as everyone watches from the outside, as Britain kind of goes from a kind of tailspin into a nosedive, people will be looking from the outside and thinking, you can see Britain getting weaker. And the Gulf states will be thinking, we've, we've got even more leverage now because they're in serious trouble. You know, so, so yeah, the history is moving very fast at the moment. And in terms of how it affects UK Gulf relations, it's definitely tipping the balance further towards the Gulf states. I, I would still hesitate to describe them as the more powerful partner in a relationship. And I find it quite frustrating that people see it in that way because it's a failure to appreciate the considerable power that Britain still has. But nonetheless, the balance is changing. The way, the way I described it in my book was asymmetric interdependence. The two sides need each other, but one side within the relationship has a greater need. And I think the need for a super, the Gulf states need for superpower or top tier power or even second tier powers to provide their security, that's an existential need, you know, which, and it's, these are not existential questions for Britain, but they are existential questions for the Gulf regimes that have relied on British, French and American power for so long. So that's why I'd say that the British are still the more powerful state. On the military side of the relationship, so as you describe in the article, GCC petrodollars are recycled into the British arms industry through our very major arms deals with the countries of the region. 
And that's sometimes thought of primarily or even solely in terms of the profits that are yielded from those arms contracts. But you describe how the significance of those deals goes well beyond just the profits to be made in terms of its, its significance to, to the UK. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that surprised me when I was researching for the PhD that became a book. I mean, I assumed that it was you know largely about arms company profits. And I think lots of us on the left think that. But when you look into it, when you you know, look, I've not spent a lot of time looking at just relevant economic data. It turns out that arms sales as a proportion of British total exports to the Gulf. It's not that big a deal, you know. I mean, there are other, there are other sectors in which Britain, you know, Britain exports goods and services, all kinds of goods and services to the Gulf. It's not the big part of our of the of the economic relationship, and and, and, and you know, arms the arms industry isn't a huge part of the British economy either purely at the level of sort of, you know, the, the amount of money it brings in. It's just strategic importance that's key. Key to a good critical understanding of capitalism is that you can't really separate out, you know, purely economic concerns from the political and the strategic. The interests of the state and the interests of, cap- of, of capital are, co- are often bound up quite closely together. And in terms of arms sales, what it really is about is... You know, since mid twentieth century, and Britain realised it was on the British British policymakers, British planners realised that Britain was on a kind of downward slope in terms of its global power. Their basic priority has been: we've got to retain as much of our global power as possible, even in in the face of the loss of empire and uh, being superseded by the Americans in the, in the sort of capitalist world. And a big part of that has been maintaining Britain's military power, and to bring military power. You've got to have your own arms industry. If you don't have your own arms industry or an arms industry that's sufficiently your own, because it's all interlinked to, a, to some degree, then you're reliant on other people for your military strength. So in Yemen, the Saudis, and this is a topic I talk a lot about, the Saudis use British and American weapons. And if they weren't continually provided with those arms, they wouldn't be able to fight. So that they're at the mercy of the British and the Americans to a large extent for their military power. Now for Britain... That's unthinkable. You know, they want to maintain their strength as a global military power. That means they must have their own arms industry and be self-sufficient for their military power. Now, the problem with that is that it's really expensive. You know, military technology and hardware and just the amount you need to maintain that status, that's really expensive. And if you start taxing the general population, they might say, well, perhaps you could, you know, you could invest in our public services before you start thinking about building aircraft carriers. It'd be nice if we weren't, you know, if our relatives weren't dying waiting for an ambulance. Perhaps you could do that first and then, and then turn to those other priorities. And so, you know, you need to think of ways to make this project viable economically. And one way to do that is through arms exports. So you think about the big weapon systems that you need. You think about what your strategy is, what your military strategy is. It's probably going to, for example, involve using a lot of air power. The British and the Americans have used a lot of air power in their interventions over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Okay, we need air power. Let's, so let's build a certain amount of fighter bombers, but we'll build more than we actually need and we'll sell the rest. You know, and that way the, the money comes back into our, into our military industry and that's how we can sustain it. The question then becomes, who's going to buy this stuff? Now, in the Cold War, that was an easy question because it was the Cold War and everyone was buying military, large numbers of, there was a large amount of customers because of the Cold War. After the Cold War, British arms exports to the rest of the world just fall off a cliff. 
But to the Gulf regimes, they go up, first because of the aftermath of the 1991 Gulf War, then as a part of the war on terror, and also because of the big oil boom, the oil price went up, up, the regimes had this huge windfall, they started spending it on Western arms, that was in the 2000s. After the Arab uprisings again, the regimes are insecure, they're worried about uprisings from below. Then there's the Yemen war. So there's been all these different reasons why demand has been quite sustained in terms of the military need for these regimes. And also they've had the money to spend. And so you get to a position where the British arms industry in terms of exports is really heavily reliant on Gulf money. But also the Gulf regimes have a particular need as well, which is existential in, in many ways for them. And so it's not just a commercial transaction. It's about Britain's status or the British state's status internationally as a global military power and maintaining that and the role that arms sales play in maintaining that and making that possible is really important. And by the way, from Gulf State's point of view, it's not just a question of buying that those Western arms. But, you know, there's also the fact that if Britain's able to maintain its status as a global military power, then it will be using that military power ultimately to come to the rescue of these regimes or at least to project its military power into the Gulf as well. And so the benefits flow in really kind of complex ways, but it's certainly not just an economic question or a case of profits for BAE systems. It's much more strategic than that. And presumably when it comes to the weapons systems themselves, it must therefore follow that many of the systems that are purchased in the Gulf states as well as states around the world from the major arms producers are not necessarily particularly appropriate to the context in which they're going to be used. Because as you say, these weapon systems are built initially and primarily for domestic need, and then there's an excess which is then sold. And if one was thinking from a purely military utility angle, you might want, say, lower tech aircraft systems which wouldn't need western support and so on and that you know would be less likely to break down you know they would be more robust and all that kind of thing but as you say the considerations are much broader than just the military question right you're buying in western support and western involvement in your security in strategic terms and that's almost more important than i mean look there was a long period alex when people just assumed that these planes would never be flown you know or they wouldn't be flown in any in any serious way that was that was the thought through kind of the 80s and 90s you know i mean remember the first gulf war 1991 I mean, you know, the Saudis had bought so much weaponry from the British and the Americans through the 70s and then the 80s. And then the minute Saddam comes knocking, they go running to Washington and London saying, can you come and bail us out? You know, they hadn't bought serious military strength, it turned out. Now, I think more recently that's changed. The Arab uprisings from late 2010, early 2011 really spooked these regimes quite badly. I think in terms of the Gulf, there also became the question of, well, to what extent can we really rely on the British and the Americans to come to our aid in all circumstances and, to, and in the way that we want? To what extent can we rely on it in the sense that, to what extent are they actually effective? Because look at these failures in Afghanistan and Iraq. But also, to what extent can we rely on them? Because to what extent will they actually want to do those things anymore? And so you start to see the Gulf regimes now start using this military capability that they have in a bit of a more of a proactive way, not necessarily successful, 
Yemen was largely a failure from that point of view, the intervention in Yemen, the war in Yemen. But still, that was something that you didn't necessarily expect to see in in the past, that this hardware would be used in that kind of way. You know, they, were, they were seen as white elephants for long periods, and and Saudis below the level of the of the royal family would be quite frustrated. Were quite frustrated reportedly in the sort of eighties and nineties. Why the hell are we buying all this all this hardware when you know we could do some investment at home? Yeah, I, I suppose the Al Yamamah deal is particularly striking. In that case, you know, this immensely massive arms deal, but then, as you say, the Gulf War comes around, and it's not the Saudis who are who are fighting. So if we come on to the main focus of the article, so there is, of course, as you discuss in the article, an inherent difficulty for the UK, a state in which the dominant political discourse and and self-image, however contested and, and riven with hypocrisy it may be, is nonetheless dominated by the professed values of, of liberal democracy. And you ask in the article, how has it been politically, morally or intellectually sustainable within the British polity? for the United Kingdom to provide vital sustenance to the Saudi regime and its counterparts for over a century. And you then go on to note that one way of making sense of the UK's support for these very repressive and anti-democratic states is to view that support in pretty cynical, instrumental terms, with the economic and strategic advantages of allying with these states simply trumping human rights or democratic considerations, and that our leaders ostensible support for democratic values is, as you put it, deployed with conscious cynicism to mask the true impulses of British power. But you then argue that, in fact, it's actually more plausible that those values are, in some sense, sincerely held by British politicians and state officials, but that by positing the societies of the Gulf states as inherently authoritarian, repressive and socially conservative, it's possible for those liberal values to be reconciled with support for the Al Saud family and the other authoritarian rulers of the region. So can you explain why you take that view? And and could you talk a bit more about how the reconciliation of those liberal democratic values with support for repressive authoritarianism in the Gulf is achieved? This kind of reflects the evolution of my thinking about UK Gulf relations over the period when I was researching the book. When I went into this at the beginning, I had quite a materialist kind of view. You know, I drew Marxist theories of imperialism and I focused on, you know, what do Marxist theories of imperialism tell me about what I should be looking for in this, when I study this relationship? Well, it's oil, arms, capital. Those are the three things. But when I looked into it, one, one of the things I was doing when I was looking into the relationship, I was particularly interested in the way in which the uprisings in, in, in Bahrain in particular in 2011 this uprising was broad-based, non-sectarian, largely peaceful, corner for democracy and human rights. And it was just violently crushed by the regime in, in really kind of cynical, brutal terms. And the British and the Americans largely backed it. And I was really interested in this. Like how, how is this possible? You know, because I'm old enough to remember 1989 when, when those regimes fell, there was this very simple story. You know, there's the authoritarian Soviet Union and its puppet states, and the people are calling for democracy. They're coming out in their en masse demanding that, and we're celebrating because they're getting what they want. And then fast forward to 2011, and the masses are coming out under authoritarian rule demanding democracy. They're being brutally crushed by our allies, effectively with our help, with arms we've sold them, and with a degree of diplomatic cover being given as well. 
what's going on there. And so I looked into what British states people, what British MPs, ministers, diplomats were, were actually saying. And a good source for that was um, parliamentary select committee hearings. Foreign Affairs Select Committee and similar were holding these kind of hearings into in, in, into British-Saudi relations, etc., etc. And I'll be reading the oral evidence. You're eavesdropping on a conversation within the British political class, within the governing class. I mean, of course, all this stuff is public, but in practice, they know that the public aren't really spending their time. You know, they're not nerds like me who'd read this sort of thing. But I'm reading this. And what I find interesting is that there's no real difference between the kind of BS you get that's used to justify this to the public and what these people actually say to each other, not quite in private, but certainly in a space where they're talking more candidly. They do believe that they are, you know, they do see Britain as a force for good in the world and as an upholder of human rights. They do sincerely believe it. It's not just as kind of, con you know, I, I will tell the public that we support democracy, but really we don't. And so you have to see it as a more complicated thing. You know, you have to acknowledge that these people do have at some level a self-image of them, you know, of themselves as upholders of a rules-based international order, upholders of Western values, believers in democracy and human rights, just doing their best, dealing with regimes that come from what they see as a kind of backwards Arab Muslim culture. And so... Reading these all these transcripts of these hearings, I came to the view that look, I, I can't credibly present an account of British Gulf relations that just focuses on the material and doesn't pay attention to the intersubjective, doesn't pay attention to the discourse, because it seems to me that in moments of stress or moments of potential stress, these conceptions are doing quite a lot of work. You know, it's not just that these policymakers and and politicians are acting in a really kind of instrumental materialistic way. They've got their own kind of conception of what they're doing, of who they are and of who they're dealing with. And I need to understand that too, because they're doing quite a lot of work in these conversations with each other in these select committee hearings to justify to each other what it is that they're doing. And so at that point, I start taking more seriously people like Edward Said and people like Cedric Robinson. As, as, as Edward Said is a theorist of how the Muslim majority world, how the Arab majority world is racialized in Western discourse. And Cedric Robinson, out of the black radical tradition in the United States, talking about how once a certain group of people or a certain society or polity is racialized in a certain way, that can affect how they're then plugged into global capitalism more generally. And this is the concept of racial capitalism that Robinson sort of devises. And so if you think about what Edward Said says about how the Arab majority world, how the Muslim majority world is quote-unquote racialized, what he said is that if you think about identity formation, how does that work? It's not just about positing a kind of derogatory view of the quote-unquote other. It's also about ourselves. It's about this kind of diet, this, this, this relationship between us and them. And you're defining the, the identity of both. So at the same time as you're defining yourself or you're defining Western culture as benign, progressive, enlightened, rational, democratic... Uh, respecting of human rights, you're also portraying 
this other that you're dealing with as the kind of antithesis of those things. Not progressive, but mired in tradition. Not rational, but mired in superstition. Authoritarian rather than democratic. Illiberal rather than liberal. And those designations of societies, as, as you say, authoritarian, socially conservative and so on, it's not a description of a particular historic moment. It, it, it's a description of, a, of an essentialized racism, right? This is who these people are. And there is something just intransigent about, about those social structures or beliefs. Yeah, yeah, this is absolutely key. I mean, this is where we get to this key point, I think, about race, which is that it's not it's not a biological reality. There's no biological kind of or, or, or scientific basis for the idea that human beings are in different races. It, it, it can be categorised, you know, biologically in terms of different races. But it's also true that racism was never sort of necessarily linked to racial pseudoscience that was based on biology. A, a racialized group can be racialized on the basis of culture, can be racialized on the basis of religion, racialized on the basis of civilization. It's really about positing different groups as having this in, some kind of inherent nature and these different groups being separate and distinct from each other and having this sort of, you know, the, the kind of essence. So you can say about... Arab people and Muslim people as a whole that they're like this, that they're, 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 they're like this, that they have these deficiencies. And you can say about white people or Europeans as a whole that they're like this, that something else, they have these, you know, aspects that make them superior. And so racialization happens in different ways, in different moments at different times. It might be about biology, but it might be about culture. It might be about religion, but it always has this same aspect of, of categorizing people in a certain way. And once you've done that, then you can plug them into global capitalism, plug them into the system in a particular position, in a subordinate position, whether that's, you know, kidnapped African uh, people, kidnapped people from the African diaspora who you can enslave in, in the sugar colonies, in the sugar plantations in the United States and the Caribbean, or whether it's people in the Arab majority world whose societies are plugged into global capitalism by virtue of having their kind of this kind of monarchical societies turned into the puppet regimes of the British and the Americans um, in the 20th century. But race is playing a role at all times in justifying these hierarchical relationships and making this, these specific forms of capitalist exploitation possible. And how does that work in the specific case of the UK's relationship with the GCC state? How does it serve to allow British officials and politicians to make sense of their support for authoritarianism in the region? Yeah, so, I mean, if you, if you can establish, first of all, in your mind, remember this is something that's is racialising discourses that, have, that are really, really well established, that have been produced and reproduced through the 19th and the 20th century, it would say, sort of documents all this really, really, really well, and which is still prevalent today. One of the many, many reasons why it's so important to pay attention to the colonial legacy and how it shaped the modern world, because colonialism was a period that went on for centuries, only finished in sort of historical terms very, very recently. And so much of it is still with us, including these mentalities, including these outlooks. Now, this Orientalist way, as I've seen the Middle East and seen the Gulf in particular, persists and that key contradistinction between ourselves as democratic and enlightened and them as authoritarian and, and illiberal 
that persists as well. And so what the British are, the story the British are able to tell themselves, the story the British elite is able to tell it others and itself, is that look, obviously we would like the Gulf to be a democratic place in an ideal world. However, you've got to understand that these people are all pretty backward, you know. And so authoritarianism is part of their cultural kind of traditions and to the extent that it might ever be possible for them to be democracies that will take a long long process of reform and all we can do is find the most enlightened members of those societies which just so happen to be the monarchs who have built up this very sort of you know lucrative relationship with we've just got to support them in their efforts to reform their backward societies that's all we can hope to do. And indeed, the fact that we're prepared to do that, the fact that we're prepared to support these reforming monarchs, these enlightened monarchs, if anything, is, is proof of how democratic and how enlightened we actually are, or how liberal and enlightened we actually are. And so you're, you're able to escape <laughs> from the reality, which is that you've been actively enabling the persistence of monarchical rule in the Gulf against challenges from below, against efforts by ordinary people in the Gulf to bring democratization, to overthrow these these regimes and you know, expand the scope of their autonomy and freedom. You're able to forget all that or push it to one side and repackage it as a kind of as 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 a sense in which, you know, you're 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 playing an enlightened role rather than a sort of rather than colluding with authoritarian rule, or rather than being an active component part of authoritarian rule. I think that's the important thing. In this discourse, what the West is able to do is externalise the phenomenon of authoritarianism. And so authoritarianism is something these people do because they're like this. Whereas the reality, if you look historically at the role Britain and the other Western powers have played in the region, is that authoritarianism has to a large extent been a product of their collusion with local elites they've always been throughout the middle east just as there are in the rest of the world competing social forces societies everywhere are sites of contestation between people seeking greater autonomy and people trying to shut that down then there's always forces from below trying to trying to expand the scope of autonomy and freedom and what the british have done and what the americans have done consistently throughout this period of of power projection, imperial power projection in the Middle East is prop up authoritarian rulers because it served their interests. And so being able to tell themselves this story that actually it wasn't they weren't colluding and facilitating authoritarianism, but actually they were just dealing with the reality of what these people are. And using this racialization to justify that, I think that's that that's helped the Western ruling class in its mind to square the contradictions and it's helped them to sell that policy to the general public. And that's resolved a really, really important tension between the realities of Western power and and the West self-image and the self-image of the Western ruling class. So that process of racialization is really important. It's constitutive, easy for me to say. It's constitutive of of the political economy of Britain's relationship with the Arab Gulf monarchies. And so really worth paying attention to, I think. And so in the case of the Arab Spring and the, the uprising in Bahrain that you've mentioned, because of that process of racialization of seeing these cultures as inherently given to authoritarianism or religious obscurantism and so on, that uprising is, is not seen as akin to the collapse of the Stalinist regimes in Eastern Europe. 
because the assumption is that if there is an uprising in somewhere like Bahrain, that what will come after will, will be something worse than the existing regimes, right? One thing they really had to do in this moment was work very, very hard to convince others, and I think themselves, that what was happening, what was plainly happening, was in fact not really happening. I mean, I think any serious observer who wasn't kind of, whose analysis wasn't compromised by their own self-interest, was able to recognise that some of the leading figures in the Bahraini resistance were just just straightforward human rights defenders who'd signed up to the, you know, signed up ideologically, morally, politically to the UN Declaration of Human Rights and ideas like that, and were just trying to make those ideas manifest in the way that Bahrain was being run. It was an inclusive, it was a non-sectarian uprising at the start. And what the Gulf regimes tried to do, with the help of their Western partners, was portray that uprising as in fact a sectarian phenomenon. And Western sort of journalists, Western sort of, you know, perhaps academics who were more inclined to support British state power and certainly the British government, diplomats, MPs and you know, cabinet ministers themselves were really desperate to see this or, or inclined to see this as a sectarian uprising because, um, just to cycle back a little bit, in Bahrain you've got a Sunni monarchy ruling a Shia majority country. I don't know if your listeners will remember Carson Mines back sort of 10 years, but the extent to which during that period, the 2010s, the period of the Arab uprisings, people who knew nothing and were determined to not spend any time trying to learn something about the region, used this simple caricature of the region as being split between Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims to simplify their understanding of the region and, and to make it more digestible. The idea that Sunni and Shia were at each other's throats and that that's the history of the region. They've been cutting each other's throats for centuries. Ancient hatreds, that's a classic Orientalist trope. And so the political realities in Bahrain were kind of shoehorned into that. The fact that Bahrain has always had a strong and often quite militant labour movement, the fact that it's got a long tradition of Arab nationalism going way back, the fact that the masses there have been pretty hostile to the regime, not necessarily because the, the regime cleaves to a different version of Islam, but because the regime is, has been a Western puppet, the regime has been corrupt, the regime has failed to invest in in the well-being of the Bahraini people, all of that stuff can be swept aside, and you can just say, "Oh well, it's just you know, it's these fanatical Muslims again of their ancient hatreds." And so that was the way in which, in terms of Bahrain, racialization was used to recast what happened in a way that could help justify the continued support. And then, of course, what the British would do is present the the regime as a kind of dispassionately sitting above Bahraini society and trying to reconcile the sectarian divisions between Bahrainis. And so what British ministers would say is that, look, Bahrain has got its problems, its sectarian divisions, and our partners, the Bahraini government, are doing their best to reform the country, to bring people together, to have a national dialogue. All the while, the sort of leading human rights organisations, Amnesty Human Rights Watch, were saying, look, this is nonsense. There's no reform. If anything, repression's getting worse. And there's no dialogue because the dissidents are in jail being tortured. But nevertheless, this is the way it was. It, I mean, it, some, some real storytelling had to go on in this moment. And the storytelling was racialising as well in terms of betraying this kind of 
you know, a country gripped by ancient hatreds rather than a country in the grip of, of an authoritarian regime, which is people were trying to overthrow. So again, you, you know, you see these racializing narratives again and again, and again, doing really important work to keep these regimes, these important, strategically important, economically important regimes plugged into at a conservative regional order presided over by the major capitalist powers. It's probably also worth pointing out that this strategy of portraying political opposition as just an expression of sectarianism, that was also the case in, in Syria with the Assad regime, right? They portrayed all opposition as representing Sunni jihadism and, and, and so on. And as you say, with the Bahraini ruling elite, Assad presented himself as more sort of even-handed figure who was uniting the country and preventing this uh, descent into sectarian conflict. Yeah, no, these are excellent points. And I mean, throughout that decade, the decade of the Arab, starting with the Arab majority world uprisings and and in into the, you know, the way in which in many cases they degenerated into serious internal conflicts. One of the phenomena you saw was the regimes selling themselves to external patrons and to the wider sort of, you know, global community as we're the interlocutors that you need to manage this process. Look at this mess underneath us. Well, we're the people that you need to manage that. You know, to distract from the fact that they were the cause of the whole thing. You know, the, the Assad regime was presenting itself as a solution to a problem that it had caused by being so corrupt and being so repressive, presenting itself as a solution to sectarian conflict, even as it itself had manipulated sectarian division in the country in the years leading up to the uprising, because it knew full well that that was going to be the card that it could play in the event of any challenge to its rule. So, yeah, I mean, you know, again, we come back to this, these questions of cynicism versus sincerity. And of course, you can't, you know, look into people's minds and know the truth. But, you know, these are things we have to think about. It's not something you touch upon in the article. But do you think that one historical example that may serve to buttress this Western perspective on, on the Gulf and the Middle East more broadly might be the Iranian revolution and the outcome of that revolution, which served to empower the Shia religious establishment in the country and that for British and American officials, that's emblematic of their belief that the region is sort of, you know, fundamentally sectarian and conservative and that any revolutionary process will terminate in just that kind of outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the Iranian revolution, but also the rise of Islamic fundamentalism in the shape of uh, likes of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, have been phenomenon which have which have played into these orientalist tropes, and you know it's it's great to have these things happen and you can cling to them and you can ignore all the other things that are going on. I mean, the major force of resistance in the Middle East after colonialism, after formal colonialism ended in the sort of interwar years and just after the war, was Arab nationalism, secular Arab nationalism, right? Which which was influenced by socialism to a significant degree. Yeah, which was which was a secular phenomenon, and they were still portrayed as fanatics. You know, Anthony Eden during the Suez Crisis was likening Colonel Nasser to Hitler. I mean, you know, there's a sense in which anyone who, who disagrees with us <laughs> or challenges us then must, almost by definition, be some sort of fanatic. We have to remember that the rise of you know fundamentalism with regard to the Iranian Revolution or with regard to Al Qaeda, we have to remember that one of the key contexts for that was the role that the West and their local allies in the region played in crushing the forces of Arab nationalism. 
I mean, this, this was true. I mean, if, if, if we just go back to the Gulf for a second, I mean, there are Arab nationalist forces in the Gulf as well. Arab nationalist forces came to power in Egypt and Syria and Iraq and, um, you know, in Yemen and, uh, and briefly in the 50s in Iran as well. But what's less known is that they were present in the Gulf. There was concern in Saudi Arabia in the 50s and 60s that, about Arab nationalists sort of in the oil industry, in perhaps even in, at some level in the regime, in the civil service, and in the, um, in the military. Uh, I mentioned before about Bahrain and its you know, lively um, trade union movement. And all of this was stamped out by the regimes of Western help. You know, without getting into the whole reasons why Nasserism failed and uh, why nas- nationalism failed or was corrupted, the reality is that once that outlet for resistance fell away, that was the kind of vacuum into which re- religious fundamentalism stepped. And uh, not to reduce the phenomenon, the rise of religious fundamentalism in, in the region purely to, to the machinations of the West. But the West played their part alongside their local allies. By crushing one force of resistance, they left the way open to another form, just as, you know, where would Hamas have been without the total betrayal of the Oslo process in terms of Israel-Palestine? Hamas were able to develop it and Islamic Jihad and etc. etc. were able to develop because of the sort of betrayals of the nationalist leadership, because of the role of, of, of Israel and its Western backers and crushing the Palestinians' aspirations. People have turned to these forms of fundamentalism as an absolute last resort. And then when they do, then the big aha, well, you know, this is what they were always like. Just as it really is quite rich, frankly, of the British and the Americans to point to authoritarianism in the Gulf and to say, oh, this is just part of their inherent nature. When if it wasn't for the British and the Americans, who knows what the Gulf would look like today? It might at least be republics. They could be democracies. Why not? They're human beings like everyone else. They're societies who have social contestation like anywhere else, you know. It's disingenuous to say it was like that when we got here because it wasn't necessarily, or it needn't have, you know, what we see today isn't necessarily what would have happened if the West had never got involved. On the other side of that argument, and and you've already alluded to it a little bit there, do you think there can, perhaps, although it's not the major pitfall, but do you think there can be a danger of sometimes overstating the role of Western states in, in propping up the regimes of the GCC and that there's a risk of understating the domestic drivers of social conservatism and repression and of downplaying the degree of agency that the rulers of the region and, and those social layers who support their command actually have and that an overly myopic focus on Western support can lead sometimes to just a, a bit of a lack of curiosity about these societies. And I, I'm, I'm here reminded of some comments by Adam Schatz in his new book, where he discusses in passing the work of the journalist Robert Fisk on Lebanon, where Schatz suggests that although Fisk's criticism of external actors in Lebanon, whether that be the United States, Israel or Syria and so on, that those criticisms that, that Fisk made were, were very well founded, but that his work also seemed to sometimes betray a lack of interest in the internal dynamics of Lebanese society. And I wonder if you think that can sometimes be true of leftist perspectives on the GCC state. Yeah, and indeed that can be true of you know some left critiques of Western foreign policy generally. That like, I mean, I. I made a really sort of conscious effort as I was doing my PhD and I've continued this since the book came out and and, and into my sort of subsequent research to familiarise myself with the field of Middle East studies 
I mean, so much. And to be honest, you know, it's not just true of the left. I mean, there's a whole kind of liberal technocratic academic literature around British foreign relations, around British foreign policy, which when it talks about British foreign policy in the Middle East, it just becomes clear that these guys haven't read the literature on the Middle East, you know, and they, they don't know the area. And you can't talk about Western foreign policy in a certain area while having all your focus on the West, you know, because there's two parts to this, isn't it? There's the terrain in which the West is operating. If, for example, you know, I don't portray myself as a Middle East expert, I portray myself, I'm an expert on British foreign relations, but because I pay a lot of attention to what Britain does in the Middle East, I have to read the Middle East studies literature and understand the complexities, you know. This is how people get sucked into this Sunni-Shia kind of caricature. It's because of a lack of curiosity. This is how sometimes, you know, the, the kind of less intelligent parts of the anti-imperialist left manage to make the errors that they do is because they, they analyse certain situations, be that Ukraine or be it Syria, just at the level of imperialist machinations and geopolitics. But there's several layers going on, you know. There's the international layer, there's the regional layer, and there's the domestic layer. And you kind of have to understand how each are interacting with each other. In Syria, you had domestic forces at play, you had regional powers intervening, and you had global powers intervening as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about the way we're starting to use this word agency in the sense that it started to be sort of deployed as a way of kind of ignoring power relations. <laughs> Some actors have more agency than others, right? You know, and um, NATO and Russia have, have, have a lot more agency in Ukraine than certain other actors might do, you know. And true in the Gulf as well, you know, the external powers have significant agency. But yeah, no, it, it's still correct that you have to pay attention to what's going on at each level. But turning back to the Gulf, I mean, I think what's important is to recognise both that the Gulf regimes have considerable agency and that authoritarianism in the Gulf is not just something that the West imposed on the Gulf, but rather is the collusion between, it comes out of the collusion between the regimes and the West. On the one hand, we've got to recognise that. And that these regimes got to be where they are and are able to stay where they are in no small part because of the internal dynamics within these countries, because of the extent to which they've been able to buy off domestic constituencies with oil, with the largesse from the proceeds of oil, etc., etc. While also at the same time, and I think this is quite important, pushing back on the sense that, you know, authoritarianism in the region comes from the essence of the region itself and or that Britain has no agency at all in this. I think, if anything, a problem in the in the region when it comes to the Gulf is that people play down the West's agency, you know. I mean, too often, honestly, Alex, when I read some of the news coverage, just incredibly frustrating, the way they talk about, for example, Boris Johnson will go to visit Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman or something like that, and they'll say... Once again, it's the West being obsequious and groveling at the court of the Saudis or whatever because they think they can get this, that and the other. And as though, and I think what's gone wrong there is that because Britain's no longer literally the most powerful state in the world, because Britain's gone through this process of decline, there is this kind of sense in which, oh, well, now we're nothing, you know, and, you know, and, and it's a kind of, 
you know, first world problems. Oh, you haven't got an empire anymore. <laughs> but like, you know, put that self-pity aside. Britain is still one of the most p- powerful states in the world. You know, it's, it's more powerful, I would say, than 95 plus percent of the world states. And when Britain goes to Saudi Arabia, it comes of its own power. It comes of its own economic, diplomatic and military power as well. In, in many of those elements, the Saudis just don't have that. And on that downplaying, I mean, I think particularly at the moment because of Brexit, there's even more of a tendency in liberal quarters to want to posit that the UK is, as you say, is really not mattering that much in international affairs anymore, despite the fact that it's still very much a major economy. Yeah, totally. I mean, the debate around Brexit has become a bit hysterical generally, and like, there is that lack of perspective. I mean, two things can be true. On the one hand, like, yeah, Britain is a mess, and it is a kind of, you know, it's a structural crisis. And Britain is on the slide in relative terms. It is less powerful than it was. It is less prosperous than it was. And Brexit has been enormously damaging. At the same time, Britain retains one of the most important financial centres in the world. It is still home to some of the world's leading corporations, whether it's it's, it's banks or whatever else. It does still have a seat on the Security Council. It's never going to lose that unless it volunteers to, which it won't. That's huge. It does still have nuclear weapons. It does still have the military ability to project power on an intercontinental basis, you know, the ability to send an aircraft carrier to any part of the world and, you know, just park its aerial capability off your coastline. I mean, these are forms of power that the vast majority of countries on the planet just don't have, you know. And so because of that relative decline, people get into this kind of mentality of, oh, well, now, you know, now we're irrelevant, now we're nothing, now we're a middle power. It is not like that. And I think it's a, it's a global north mentality that allows people to sink into that. And the danger when we're talking about things like, for example, Britain's relationship with the Gulf states, is you can make out that Britain is powerless in that relationship. I mean, judging the degree of agency, the relative degree of power that two sides have, is quite a delicate judgment. And it's something that, you know, you have to remove those kind of preconceptions and sort of aspects of kind of lazy thinking. One other aspect I think that's worth mentioning at this point, just talking about this, is that I think there is a sense in which when Britain does things that seem terrible, corrupt, facilitating of human rights, abuses, etc., etc. There's an instinct to say, well, we would be promoting democracy and human rights in the, re- in, in the region, but these Saudis are so powerful, they have so much leverage over us, you know. that yeah, you know, they've, they've led us astray. Yeah, literally, literally that, literally that. You know, our pure noble intentions have been corrupted by these awful Oriental types with their, with all their money and that. I mean, it really is, you know, when you look, look under the hood of that discourse, it's some pretty nasty stuff underneath it, I think. And there's, you know, there's a real sense of narcissism as well. So we've sort of been bewailing, bemoan our weakness in this position. We're actually, the reality is that the British state, when it arms Saudi Arabia to the teeth as it bombs the crap out of Yemen, when it, provides the military capability with which the Emiratis and the Saudis blockade and strangle Yemen, when it provides the military capability and the training for security forces which then crush peaceful pro-democracy movements. No one is making the British do that. The regimes are not making the British do that. The British are choosing to do that, not through subservience, but through an understanding of their material self-interest, which has then been kind of glossed with 
or you know lubricated or problems have been squared through this kind of racializing discourse but yeah we didn't think we've been forced into it that's uh you know but we we see this with israel palestine as well by the way when people talk about the all-powerful israel lobby as if the west ever needed a lobby a foreign lobby to tell it to support a repressive human rights abusing um war crime committing regime it's never needed that it's never needed an external lobby to push it around when it comes to that sort of behavior that's just standard in in western foreign relations i mentioned earlier the topic of sports washing and the purchase of football teams such as manchester city and, and newcastle by gcc states and there's also been plenty of commentary in the media on the role of individual players such as Lionel messi who has been employed as a tourism ambassador for saudi arabia as well as also the increasing presence of players, including Cristiano Ronaldo in the Saudi Football League. Now, my impression is that the debate around these topics tends to centre on roughly two positions. The first seeks to downplay or defend the role of the GCC states in modern football by suggesting that there's always been corruption and self-interest in the game. And sometimes this is even accompanied by the claim that opposition to Abu Dhabi's ownership of Manchester City, say, or, or Qatar hosting the World Cup, is in fact motivated by anti-Arab racism or sometimes simply uh, jealousy in the case of fans of, uh, of other clubs. The other more liberal perspective emphasises the human rights abuses of these states and, and at the very least takes the view that GCC involvement in football is deserving of some serious scrutiny. But what seems largely to be missing is much discussion of the British state's role in creating and, and fostering repressive rule in the region, as you've described, and, and the broader economic and political links between the GCC and, and, and the UK. And also just touching on, on the last points you were making there, it's also couched as if the GCC states are all powerful. And I, I actually wonder, you know, to what extent is the topic of sports washing and the discussion around it actually serving to foster that idea that we are mere sort of supplicants in our relationship with the GCC. But what's your impression of the nature of the sporting debate? It's an interesting one. I think, I mean, there's so much going on here. There's so much complexity to pick apart. But I mean, perhaps a good way to start would be to situate this within the wider sort of set of structures that I was kind of outlining earlier in terms of the political economy of Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, whereby it's an economic relationship and it's a strategic relationship and all that's going together. It's an economic and strategic relationship within which authoritarian regimes are playing an enormous role, keeping that together. You know, a key concern being if they were overthrown, what would happen next? It could be democratic, but it could be anti Western and the need to justify all that and the need to maintain that sort of keep that politically sustainable, keep it politically sustainable through racializing discourse. But also, you know, this is where sports washing comes in, I think, because it's worth thinking about what concretely is being sports washed. You know, what are they trying to achieve here? It's not just a case of we would like you to think better of us, so let us buy your football team and, you know, help you win those trophies that you were never winning, you know, until we turned up. Sorry to Newcastle fans and Man City fans, but you know it's true. <laughs> now, I don't think it's just about that. I think it's more a question of not just sports washing their image per se, but sports washing the relationship between these regimes and our government. Because if you feel more well disposed to these regimes, then you're less likely to oppose Britain's relationship with them. You know, Britain will come under less pressure to downgrade or alter or end its ties with these regimes if people have a better view of them. And you remember what I was saying before about Bahrain, 
when the big story, you know, the regime comes under comes under challenge from oppositional forces from below, and then the story the British and the regime try to tell is that okay, things have been bad, but the regime has, you know, a few mistakes were made in, in, in the crushing of this pro-democracy movement, but the regime is fundamentally benign. It's a reforming regime. It's moving in the right direction. That's That has been a key element of propaganda in support for Western collusion with authoritarianism since forever. I mean, if you read Noam Chomsky talking about the dirty wars in, in, in Central America in the 1970s and 80s, he would always be pointing to the fact that American diplomats would be saying, the regime is moving in the right direction, the regime is carrying out reforms, and we need to stick with them. It's, a, it's, it's classic, you know. You mentioned in the, in the article that very amusing piece published by the Jadalia website in 2017 titled 70 Years of the New York Times Describing Saudi Royals as Reformers. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a fantastic website, Jadalia. If you want to know anything about the Middle East, it's a great place to start. And when Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman first, like, he first became Crown Prince, he started selling this whole idea of himself as the reforming Crown Prince which fits perfectly into this whole idea of they're the backward ones and we're the enlightened ones. They're the backward ones and we're the enlightened ones, but we have found amongst, it, it, within this backward society, these monarchs who are the more enlightened or the least unenlightened, and they're the ones who are going to reform their societies. We've got to be very, very patient with them because it could take a long time, you know, maybe forever. But... They are going to reform their societies. Now, when Bin Salman came through, he he starts pushing this this narrative quite hard. Who are you going to go to 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 sell this narrative? This obviously false, racist, stupid narrative. Well, of course, you go to Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, because he loves this story. He keeps telling it again and again and again. He was portraying the Saudi regime as reformers, even when they were sending their troops into Bahrain to crush the the uprising there. And so there's this big feature in the New York Times, the wonderful Crown Prince, who's going to be this big reformer. And then Jadalia produces this wonderful article that you mentioned, 70 years, whatever it is, of the New York Times presenting <laughs> presenting Saudi kings as reformers. And they go back through the archive of the New York Times and they show king after king after king after king has been the subject of a feature in New York Times saying this is the guy who's going to reform this backward kingdom. Yes, they're all, you know, backward and authoritarian and, 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 and fundamentalist, but he's a bit like us at least. We've just got to stick with him. You know, well, no surprise, despite this, this, this procession of reformers that the New York Times has trumpeted, the Saudi regime continues to be, you know, one of the most authoritarian regimes on the face of the planet. But yeah, I mean, this notion of the reforming regime that's going in the right direction, taking it back to sports washing, is really, really important. That's the story that Qatar tried to sell in the World Cup. You know, yeah, we've got our problems, but we're, in, we're moving in the right direction. When these sports washing efforts happen and the people in Western sport who are colluding with the whole thing are challenged by the media, they will say, yes, there's been some problem in whatever regime it is, regime X, but they're trying to reform. The classic one was Greg Norman, the American-Australian. I mean, I really don't know golf, but he's a golfer anyway. He's a very famous golfer. And um, the Saudis at the moment are trying to take over international golf and seemingly succeeding. He was one of the first movers in all this. And he was challenged, why are you go along, going along with what the Saudis are doing in light of, say, the merger of Jamal Khashoggi? And what he said was, well, everyone makes mistakes. 
when it comes to <laughs> they, they've raised a murder. Who, who who amongst us has has not murdered a dissident journalist in a consulate? Literally, whom whom's among us? Has, you know, we've 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 all you know. But let's buy, let's let bygones be bygones and and just acknowledge that that they're moving in the right direction. They're trying to change their culture. I think that was the particular very revealing choice of words that he used. And and sports washing is part of this. It's part of selling this story. I won't name the famous British football podcast, the one which I was listening to this morning. But it was on on the show. They were talking about this. They were talking about this new Saudi football league, and they had on. A football writer in Saudi Arabia, I guess, someone from within Saudi. And this guy was selling this story, you know, he was saying, well, look, in Saudi Arabia, I was working here 10 years ago and there were no women in the office. Now 20% of the of the people in the office are women. Things are changing in this country. You know, we're, we're getting there and you've got to stick with us or, you know, he's really popular. So Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, just not mentioning the fact that women's rights activists are being jailed and tortured in this country, you know. Even as they forced the regime to make concessions to women, they're being jailed and tortured as if to say, don't you imagine for one moment that change comes from you, the Saudi people, it comes from us, the regime. This whole story works so well, you know. Whatever terrible things the regime is doing, they can always say, well, okay, but that's our culture. It's not even really us, the regime, it's our people, and we're trying to change it, whereas the reality is that often change is coming or change is being demanded or pushed for from below. And the regime, to the extent that any reforms are being made, they're cosmetic changes in the interest of maintaining the fundamental status quo, as we see when they continue to jail uh, women's rights activists and the like. And yeah, sports washing within this plays a really important role. And, um, you know, whenever you, whenever people involved in sports washing are challenged, they would invoke that reform argument, just the same as uh, as politicians do. So, yeah, it's a really interesting case, I think. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. I'll be back with a regular show soon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.